Hello and welcome to a new episode from UBP's Positive Impact Team. My name is Rupert Welshman and I'm one of the team's Positive Impact Portfolio Managers. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome James Close, Head of Climate Change at NatWest, one of the UK's big four commercial banks. We wanted to do this podcast as some important research um, that we've been doing into financial stewardship uh, and what it really means for investors generally. I really singled out NatWest as a global leader among large banks in terms of the way it is approaching the challenge to decarbonizing developed economies. James, welcome, and thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure, Rupert. Good to see you and good to hear from you. Uh, you too. So to start at the top, I was, I was hoping you might be able to introduce yourself. I, I note that you've had a varied career, but always a focus on elements that are integral to the climate change challenge. Uh, so perhaps you could tell me how you've come to your current role at NatWest and indeed uh, also uh, what the title of head of climate change in a 60,000 person bank like NatWest actually means on a, on a day-to-day basis. Well. Um... Yes, I guess I've been working on climate change for the last 15 years, really, Rupert, um, inspired a little bit by Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth and, and watching him give his lecture up in Sheffield. Um, and when I did that, I was a partner at EY and we, we did a lot of work uh, to try and get sustainability at the heart of our uh, offering in EY. Um, and we made some progress in that area. But at that point, I thought, Uh, it might be better to spread my wings a bit further. And I became the director for climate change at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. And that's when I really uh, got uh, deeply involved in financial flows towards uh, climate action, and particularly in uh, emerging and developing markets. I spent a lot of time ahead of the Paris Agreement, uh, supporting uh, our World Bank team there to get uh, what I think was a really strong outcome from Paris. Um, and then since then, uh, I, I returned to the UK um, and uh, I've been ahead of climate change at NatWest Group for the last uh, couple of years, nearly. Um, and uh, I run a, a reasonably small team of people, about 12 people of climate change experts. And what we're really trying to do is mainstream climate across the whole bank. So we work with hundreds of uh, professionals in the organization, ranging from our relationship management managers right the way through to our risk community uh, and also our finance team uh, to make sure that we're allocating our capital in a way that's consistent with our climate ambitions. Uh, And of course, uh, we also uh, are very actively involved in making sure that we're reporting accurately through the Climate Related Disclosures Report, which follows the the principles of TCFD as well, so that shareholders can see what we're doing and hold us to account for uh, the ambition that we've set out and the uh, the progress we've made towards delivering delivering that ambition. Yeah, thank you, and and I can attest as a witness that um, your your published um, information is is very full, and uh, and you have a lot of detail there for those uh, investors or those members of the public that would would like to to read about how a bank is actually um, pursuing uh, decarbonisation. So I can only imagine your days are are very long and and really quite busy. Well, yes, but I think all of us working in this space uh, are committed to making a positive difference. And it's great working for an organisation that's 
really strongly led in this area by our CEO, Alison Rose, uh, and has taken along the whole executive and many uh, of our staff. So uh, it's very rewarding to uh, be involved with uh, an organization that is genuinely purpose-led and putting climate right at the heart of its ambitions. That's great. So for, for us, the, um, the the COP26 last year was a really pivotal pivotal moment for finance. Um, we saw the, the coming together of, of the GFANS or the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, and, and actually pertinent to today's discussion, the Net Zero Banking Alliance. Uh, and those those arriving on the scene really at, at COP26 were, were an important uh, uh, turning point for, for, for us uh, looking at financial stewardship as an investor, as head of investors. Um, as the listeners probably know, though, Nat, NatWest was one of the 11 principal sponsors of, of COP26. 26, and, and really, I, I believe the only bank uh, that was a sponsor as well. So, and you've been an active member of um, the NZBA. Um, so my question really for, for listeners is, what does it mean? be a member of the Net Zero Banking Alliance? And, and how big a grouping, how diverse a grouping is it? Yeah, well, the I think the uh, foundation of all of this, and led very ably by uh, Mark Carney, who's, who's also introduced Michael Bloomberg and Mary Shapiro uh, to uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance to Net Zero, uh, was to mainstream climate in into all financial decisions. Um, and the power of uh, GFANS is getting businesses associated with $130 trillion worth of assets and investment together to make a joint commitment uh, that we will hit net zero by 2050, which is in line with the ambitions of the Paris Agreement. And I think that's really important because uh, finance needs to flow to support the transition. Uh, and we need to figure out how we can end the most harmful, high-emitting activities whilst at the same time mobilizing capital for the future um, production of clean energy and, of course, many of the other things that go alongside decarbonizing the economy, whether it's you know, shifting towards electric vehicles or whether it's looking at our uh, land use and food systems and making sure those are consistent uh, with net zero and have real environmental integrity associated with them. And of course, you know, a massive area for us here in the UK is buildings and, and housing. And, you know, as a retail bank, we provide a huge number of mortgages. So we can use that money to help uh, our customers decarbonize their homes. Uh, and of course, that's extremely topical at the moment because energy prices are going up um, so quickly and so rapidly. So I think the, the movement towards uh, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero and this alignment between asset owners, fund managers, banks, and the real economy is, is a real catalyzing action uh, that sort of sits at the heart of the Paris Agreement. And it was a very powerful um, combination of, of, uh, of people who came together and uh, the conviction that we all had, I think, towards mobilizing our finance uh, for net zero was uh, was was really important to the success of Glasgow, and I think for us as a bank, um, you know, we're right in the middle of this. You know, asset owners invest in us, uh, as do fund managers, uh, to see how we're performing and what we're doing. So we have the pressure from our shareholders uh, to deliver against those net zero uh, actions. Um, but we've got to we we're the people who can translate that investment pressure 
into real economy action by the way in which we use our capital and also uh, the tools that we give to our customers as well. And I think you know many of the banks that are involved in uh, GFANS have a similar mindset that uh, you know we have this role to play uh, with businesses uh, and with consumers um, that uh, that can really bring to life uh, what everybody needs to do, and also uh, tap into what you know Lord Nick Stern, who's our advisor, reminds us is that you know climate change is the uh, or, or getting to net zero is the um, growth opportunity of the 21st century, um, and we see that you know both within uh, you know developed countries across the whole of Europe and and what Europe's doing, but also in developing countries as well um, as they uh, look to decarbonize their growth and make sure they've got access to the capital. That means they don't need to use um, fossil fuels in the way that many developed countries have to to promote their growth. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And it is uh, the, the Net Zero Banking Alliance is a diverse set of uh, organizations. I'm numbering, uh, I'm going to get the number wrong, but well over 100 now. And as you, you mentioned, the, the trillions of assets involved with that. Uh, but it's still also in its nascency, I, I expect. And, and one of the elements I think that's been very important for target setting has been agreeing the sort of framework around those targets, and then particularly, obviously, the science-based target initiative. Um, I wonder whether we might just delve a little bit, uh, James, into the way that NatWest is setting targets and the use of, of third-party frameworks like the science-based target initiative. Yeah. Well, we, we put um, climate at the heart of our purpose-led strategy, which was launched uh, in February of 2019. And I think that was very thoughtful in terms of getting ahead of some of this uh, activity. And we set ourselves the target to halve the climate impact of our emissions by uh, 2030. And we immediately realized that we needed to get a very good grip on uh, what our current emissions were so that we could work out what the pathways were to, to reduce those emissions. And so, James, just just to be clear, you're, you're here. You're talking about the emissions related to your lending, and exactly, your... yes, yes. So we, you know, we 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 call it, uh, you know, we put putting our own house in order is dealing with our scope one and scope two emissions, which we've done by and large by reducing uh, our emissions from a 2019 baseline by 46 percent, and we'll continue to very rapidly uh, reduce those emissions. But of course, that's tiny compared to our financed emissions. And that's where uh, we put our effort and started with uh, measuring those financed emissions. So we, we started off by measuring four sectors, which we published in 2021. And then earlier this year, we published another 12 sectors. So uh, I think it's now well over 50% of our balance sheet. We've actually done uh, analysis on the level of emissions that we've uh, we've got now. We we know this number is not right because it's very complicated to to measure sectoral based emissions, and of course you're doing it at sector level, and each of our counterparties has a different level of um, carbon intensity. But it's giving us some good direction, and we're also using the PCAF scores, which which tell us how accurate that is, so that we can continuously look to improve the accuracy of that information. So that's uh, the, just sorry, the may I just ask? 
Uh, the the PCAF, just for, for listeners who might not be quite as close to it as you are, what, what, yes. what, what is that organisation? Uh, it's the uh, Partnership for uh, Carbon Accounting Framework. And it, like like the NZBA, it is made up of a, a large number of industry pra- practitioners who are coming together to agree standardised standardized ways of looking at emissions for the finance sector, and particularly for financed emissions. Is that right? It, it, exactly. And it's convened by uh, the UN under the UN, uh, UNFI, the U- UN United Nations Financial Institutions Programme. So, you know, there's it's a, it has a very global view around all of this. And I think, it, you know, it's a really good example of how challenging it is to bring standardization to a lot of these uh, activities. And this is just one of the frameworks that enables us to do that. And, and we've chosen that because we think that's a very good way of uh, presenting our targets to the science-based targets initiative. Uh, and we've done that, we've submitted those, and we're now in a conversation with them to get them validated. And that validation will basically tell us that the level of ambition that we have against those science-based targets is consistent with you know, our 2030 target and also uh, getting to net zero by 2050. Now, of course, we're not in control of all of this because we rely on government policy and the third party uh, actors who are all around it. But, you know, we will make decisions around our ambition to deliver that 2030 target. And, you know, the science-based targets initiative gives us the integrity and the confidence that we're doing this with real analytical rigor and proper commitment. So, so, James, the only question I was going to ask you there was that when you were setting those targets and, and reaching out for third-party verification for those and, and selecting science-based target initiative for that verification, what, what's the what was what's behind the choice of SBTI versus anything else? Could you have gone to your old friends at EY and and looked for verification instead, or is it? What, am I right in terms of how our listeners should think about SBTI? Should they look for any decarbonisation plan to be approved by SBTI as, as a sort of the gold standard? Well, that, that's the conclusion that we came to, Rupert, was that uh, this was a highly credible partnership between the World Resources Institute and WWF and others. And it was underpinned by, you know, the basic science that uh, that is associated with climate change and therefore, you know, was identifying you know, what rate of decarbonisation we needed to deliver to be part of the overall global solution. So, you know, it is very integral to the uh, Paris Agreement and, you know, what the expectations are uh, from Paris, which is why we signed up to it and and why we've used it. I mean, there are other people using other similar forms of verification, but we felt this one had uh, just had a lot of integrity and um, that it was the right one for us. Yeah, and, and our research from our point of view as investment managers would, would absolutely concur with that, that we see that the SBTI framework is is clearly sort of industry leading in terms of when one when a company is reaching out for that that third party verification. I wonder if I could just move us on to a slightly more thorny issue that, that we get quite a lot as as investment managers. And and that is, you know, this debate about whether a high street bank can actually be de- defined as positive impact. Um, obviously, there's something for me to worry about, not for you to worry about necessarily. But, but really, probably the best way to pick into that question in a, in more detail would be first of all, so maybe 
maybe let's look at the the most provocative element, which is sort of the banking industry's most ardent critics would be those who say that you know banks continue to lend to high emitting sectors like oil and gas, and so how how can that be? Uh, how can that sit comfortably with uh, being positive impacts? And and I think you're alluding to this by by having set your um, your targets for 2030 and 2050. But but I wonder if you could just share a bit more detail about this notion that that finance could just immediately switch the tap off to to high emitting sectors um, and not to do so is considered negative impact. Yeah, well, I think my kind of journey into some of this, uh, Rupert, was was through Adair Turner post the financial crisis when he kind of laid down the challenges uh, to banks to be socially useful. And I think that's the whole kind of construct around being purpose-led is to make our capital socially useful. And I think that means that uh, we have to be thoughtful about the investments we're making and what impact they have on society. Um, and I think to you know just divest overnight of oil and gas assets, we'll just move the problem to somewhere else. So what we've done is we've uh, applied a credible transition plan test to coal and oil and gas businesses. Uh, and we've evaluated whether they have a, a credible transition plan, partly on the basis of uh, temperature alignment, and we we got a third party consultancy to do some of the analytical work around that, but also around the judgment in the policy context in which those organisations sit, and and the other activities that they're undertaking. Because many of the oil and gas companies have the capabilities and uh, know how uh, to be leaders in the renewable space, and you're already seeing that with many utilities in Europe and also with the oil and gas majors as well. But at the same time, we've looked at some of these businesses and we've concluded that they just really don't have a commitment to net zero. And as a result of that and you know, the conversations that we've had with them, we've decided that we won't uh, bank with them anymore. Or, and and we, you know, we've, we've taken those positions and we've uh, unwound them in a, you know, a responsible way, but in a way that is consistent with our desire to be, um, to be impactful in the way in which we do it. And I think, you know, we look at this as well through the lens of the Just Transition. We're members of the Just Transition Alliance. And, you know, of course, we've had a huge heritage in uh, the in Scotland and, and in the North Sea in terms of the work that we've done there. But we've also looked at our, our customers there. And many have, you know, built their businesses alongside uh, oil and gas exploration and production in the North Sea. But most of them are able to pivot towards uh, renewables and to offshore wind, for example. So we see that as part of our role to support those businesses in the supply chain, responding into this to this enormous global shift that's coming in the way in which we produce our energy. Um, and and again, you know, we think that that's what what brings impact in that decarbonisation of electricity generation piece. But of course, impact touches so many other areas as well. And you know, a good example of that would be in uh, in agriculture, with the with the biggest bank to UK's farmers. Um, it's a relatively small amount of our lending, but it's quite a significant proportion of the uh, carbon uh, that we finance. So we have an obligation to find out, find a way to get the finance to those farmers so that they can reduce their carbon emissions. And we think that's consistent with their uh, customers in the supply chain, which are represented by the big supermarkets, who've also committed to, through WWF and, and others, to 
halving the nature of impact of their uh, food basket by 2030. So you start to build a systems view of what uh, impact might be and how we can contribute to that in the, in the most positive way. I like that very much. I like the systems view, and particularly maybe the, 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 the title has been given to the banks within that as being the policeman of the transition. Uh, it certainly it makes it all clearer for, for hopefully for the listeners to understand why banks shouldn't just be turning off the taps immediately to, to some of those areas, but should be following really strong transition plans by, by companies like the oil and gas in the oil and gas sector. Uh, so that sort of deals with the with, with sort of the negative side. But on the positive side, obviously, you've got some pretty eye-catching numbers out there. Um, uh, particularly, I, I noted the hundred billion uh, sterling of new lending through to twenty twenty-five uh, towards the sustainable areas. And um, I, 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 to me, that that number is obviously a um, uh, an enormous figure when you think of it in, in terms of real economic effect. But but I wondered how um, how you could break that down for us. Um, you know, what, what kind of areas that will fit within that that um, uh, that, that budget? Yeah. Well, when we launched our strategy, Rupert, we committed to twenty billion of uh, climate and sustainable finance and funding over three years, and we just found that uh, we'd hit that target within eighteen months because that was the demand for that type of financing. So uh, ahead of the COP, we uh, we reviewed uh, where we were and we decided that we wanted to uh, significantly scale up our ambition. Uh, so we did a, a review across the whole of the organization and looked for uh, the commitments that we could make both on our lending, but also on our you know, fundraising and fund management and capital markets activity. Uh, and that's where we've, uh, we've aggregated that uh, to that 100 billion pound target. About half of it is lending and the other half of it is uh, capital markets related activity. And, you know, we feel we feel pretty good about the progress we're making. I think we're going to, um, you know, obviously continue to monitor it. Uh, we'll look to uh, make sure that we're sharpening the definitions of it as well so that we can be confident that all of that money is being mobilized uh, to support uh, green and uh sustainable related activities. And of course, because there's no sort of established taxonomy yet uh, in the UK, and obviously in the EU, there is uh, one that's going through um, the, the commission there. We've had to take some views on some of these things. So we'll continue to learn, um, but you know, we'll hold ourselves to account against you know, a real authenticity and impact that comes from, uh, from mobilizing that finance for our customers. Fascinating. And and I'm sure your, as you say, your reporting uh, will give people a, a good view, a good insight as to um, how you're achieving those milestones uh, along the way. And, and the other, I mean, you, you alluded to this before, and it's slightly outside of maybe the, the, the main thrust of, of our conversation today. But in terms of your own operational footprint, um, you also got some pretty significant targets in there. You mentioned them before, but, but you have also used... Uh, carbon offsets uh, to to mitigate that as well for, in terms of your own operational footprint. Can can you just uh, say a word or two about the the type of offset that's considered to be good offset? What what listeners should be aware of as being maybe more questionable offsets in in your mind? Yeah, well, this is a, it, it's a really uh, complex and evolving market, of course. And what we've uh, what we've uh, sought to do really is to 
uh, to focus on carbon removal offsets. So those are ones that are actually going to take carbon uh, out of the atmosphere rather than carbon reductions, which could be you know, funding uh, renewables, which are, which are an alternative to oil and gas. So I think we're the only UK bank to do uh, carbon removals in our offsets. Uh, and I think there's actually a, a, a very small number of corporates that are focused on uh, carbon removals as well. So uh, I think that's, uh, you know, that's a, a quite a, a useful, um, if you like, guidance to provide. And of course, you know, supply and demand is key to all of this. And it, it, by and large, not always, but many of the carbon removal offsets are a little bit more expensive than mm-hmm. uh, some of the alternatives. Uh, but as we get, you know, better quality certification and visibility over uh, the car- quality of carbon credits, then you'll start to see the differential in price emerging between what are good quality carbon credits and what are poor quality carbon credits. And what we'll do is we'll we'll be as transparent as we can, both in terms of the amount that we've bought in the market, but also the price that we're paying for them and the type of offsets that we've got. So people can judge us then on on that whole strategy that we have around uh, carbon offsetting. And, you know, we we think this is going to be really important, you know, for our customers as well. So we've partnered with several other banks uh, to create Carbon Place, which is a marketplace uh, that tokenizes the carbon credits and enables them to be traded between banks and their customers in a in a low transaction cost and highly uh, effective way. And again, that builds more and more transparency to that market as it starts to emerge over time. Um, so we know, again, we've really um, uh, worked our way through some of this uh, activity. We constantly have a, a great challenge from our climate executive steering group, which uh, comprises of a lot of the um, ex exco in the in the uh, in it, and and of course our sustainable banking committee, which is the uh, the board committee that oversees uh, what we're doing in these areas. Um, and we get some good challenge, and we, you know, again, we're trying to be as consistent and transparent as we possibly can around it. That's great. Yeah, very fascinating um, market, particularly as you say, carbon places uh, is something that I, I suspect uh, is going to be. Um, more needed uh, in in future years. Um, so so I commend your uh, your bank's activity and um, in in uh, establishing that. Can I ask if we switch tax a little bit? I I, I wanted to so, so because there's so much going on in that West. It, it it leads me to sort of want to look at the climate puzzle from the point of view of of say your CFO or, or particularly as as an investor, but but particularly from the point of view of CFO. And you say what well, you know a lot of the initiatives today. Are focused on the bank's financed emissions rather than on on near term profits, and so I was just wondering, you know, you you know as much as you can, uh, uh, whether you can share sort of any thoughts on how ultimately or whether ultimately the strategy that the now West is following on climate actually enhances or or damages medium or long term profitability for a bank like yours. Yeah, well, I I think um, you know. It's why it's really refreshing to talk to you, Rupert, and your team, because uh, you really think about this, not just from the point of view of, you know, 20 factors that you stick into your model and you think about what that means in terms of, uh, you know, share price and whether you should be a buyer or a seller of it. Because I think, you know, this is this is whilst we're, you know, performing financially pretty well at the moment, um, you know, it's more complicated than uh, hitting, you know, EBITDA numbers because, we're looking at reallocating the capital flows that we have within the bank. And, you know, we believe that this will give us a more resilient 
uh, balance sheet. We believe that we'll have a better customer base as a result of it. Uh, there's some really great evidence that comes from um, Bain and Rabobank, who did a study that showed that uh, for small and medium-sized enterprises, those that uh, were uh, factoring in ESG considerations most had the lowest levels of default. So, you know, we think that this is uh, going to build our business in a really strong and resilient way. We've got to, you know, work hard to convince uh, all of our investors that that's the case. And, you know, quite rightly, they apply a somewhat skeptical lens around that. So uh, we're trying to use, uh, we, we committed to producing a, a climate transition plan as part of our say on climate resolution, which we took to our AGM last year. And I think that climate transition plan will help us tell the story of why we think we will have a better uh, business and why we deserve a, a higher multiple as a result of the work that we're doing. Uh, to take advantage of the opportunities, but also manage the risk in our in our balance sheet as a result of you know this mega trend that's happening uh, towards net zero. Absolutely, and and I guess my my point there would be that when you look at the net zero bank alliance, any signatory that um, joined that alliance has an eighteen month window to put in place. Uh, an awful lot of the commitments which you have uh, explicitly mentioned in in your various documents and in your strategy. So, so if um, it, my, my uh, highlighting of costs here is something that's going to be cross sector and, and global in terms of its pressures for for those companies that those banks that have have signed up the NZBA, I, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, we we we're doing this in part because. Uh, we want to be a leader and uh, we want to show what can be done. Um, and that's why we're very active in these forums. Uh, you know, Alison is one of the principals on uh, GFANS. She co-chairs uh, Workstream 1.3 on Real Economy Transition Plans. You know, we're heavily involved with uh, uh, King Charles's uh, Sustainable Markets Initiative as well, along with many other uh, banks and organizations. And I think that you know, we can't get to net zero by ourselves. We have to work with others and we have to uh, show uh, what we can, what we've learned and, and make that available uh, so that others don't have to go through, you know, some of the pain and some of the costs that we've been through in, in making the progress that we've made. Yeah, very, very true. Um, well, look, I think we're running out of time um, here. So I was going to try to bring this all back to some kind of summary. And, and it seems to me that, NatWest Group, um, it, it must be an incredibly busy um, and energetic place to, to, to work at the moment, and, and no one's probably busier than your good self. Um, so, you know, maybe a, f a few final words in terms of what should listeners look out for from, from NatWest itself or from the global banking sector more widely in the coming months and quarters? Well, I think uh, if I take those two questions in reverse order, I think for the banking sector, um, you know, we will move towards greater standardization. There will be more convergence around net zero goals and uh, net zero actions uh, in, the, in terms of the, both the target setting in terms of emissions intensity, but also in terms of the provision of green finance. And I think that will help us all come together in a way that um, maximizes ambition and enables us to play that pivot role between you know, the uh, the asset owners and the fund managers and the real economy. And, and you know, that's why I think banks have such an important role to play. 
Now, for us at NetWest, uh, you know, we, we've taken this top-down sector view of emissions. We recognize that we really want to get to a bottom-up counterparty view of, of emissions. Um, you know, that's why we're providing our customers with access to tools that enable them to uh, measure their emissions and work out what they can do uh, to address them. Um, and I think that sort of uh, activity, which which we've actually made available to everybody, you don't need to be a NatWest customer, it's free to use, is, is the sort of um, useful and practical activity that we can provide that supports our customers. Um, I think, you know, we, we've, uh, we're in the final stage of this strategy cycle. So the next strategy cycle, uh, we're going to want to build on the work that we've done and make sure that uh, we're really using the uh, platform that we've created to build uh, leadership and also value and resilience across the business. Um, and I think also what we're uh, able to do is engage with our staff in a really, really powerful way. Our colleagues are bought into this. We provide them with training through the partnership we've got with the University of Edinburgh. Uh, and we're deepening our skills and awareness, uh, which helps us, but also helps our customers and makes people feel as though they're part of an organization that really is trying to have a positive impact in the communities and the society in which it's operating. That's great. And, and I hope the listeners have um, taken your words and, and got a really good idea, understanding of the, the system-wide transition that we are all pursuing here and the importance of finance and particularly of, of big banks within that. James, thanks very much for your time today. And, and I hope to speak to you again at some point in the future. My pleasure, Rupert. Really great conversation. And thank you very much indeed. Thanks.